Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this afternoon, that you give us ears to hear your word and eyes to see your glory in it. I feel particularly weak when I stand up to proclaim your word, but we know that in inspired scripture is the power of God. I pray that we would each see the necessity of your eternal Son, Jesus Christ, lifted up on a cross to die. That we would further meditate on and comprehend your love for us in that event to bring us this thing called new birth, being born again, being born of water and the Spirit. Father, please break us out of the patterns of thinking and living that are not in keeping that are not consistent with our new life in Jesus Christ, but are instead consistent more with the darkness from which we all came. Father, I pray in earnest for those that need to hear the words of Jesus, you must be born again. Apart from being born again, Father, we are all under the condemnation our sin has earned us. I pray that those who need to hear 
today, which is all of us, would have your spirit do his work in our hearts. And that some would even receive the work of new birth, the work of regeneration by faith today. That is our prayer. Fix our gaze on you. Fix our gaze on Jesus, the only one who can heal the death warrant of sin, the poison that we all carry with us. That you would heal us from that by your grace through the work of Christ in whose name we pray and whose blood we plead. Amen. What does it mean to be born again? If you hear the phrase, I mean, even take it out of the church context a little bit. If someone came up to you at Trader Joe's, where Tim does not go, someone comes up to you at Trader Joe's and says, hey, are you born again? What, what would be the picture, even in, in your mind? Would you think that's kind of an old-fashioned phrase to be using? Born again, wow. Would you perhaps import some of the cultural baggage that I think many of us probably hear in that phrase? Because born again carries with it a lot of different meanings. You can hear it in a totally secular context of maybe someone who's totally changed something, like someone who changed a a politician who totally changes their political party could be referred to as someone who got born again. Everything about their position and their decision-making might have just totally been turned on its head. Or maybe you hear it with a tone of judgment. Oh, you're one of those born-again people. Like, you're a fanatic Christian. And you hear it with a mocking tone of maybe a coworker that looks down on those who would trust something outside of themselves. Or maybe you hear it with the right kind of a, a setting of a heart that has been transformed. Maybe you know someone or even thinking back on your own experience in life where what you were living for was yourself, your pleasure. And then one day, God did a work in your heart. And all of a sudden, everything was changed. You didn't want the things that you used to want. You have been born again. So there's many different kind of meanings that that phrase could carry, just based on your background, based on how it's been used. But Jesus here uses it for probably the first time. It's the first time we actually see it on the lips of someone in Scripture. The high-level concepts are there, even through the Old Testament, and Jesus is going to lecture Nicodemus on that truth. But it's never been phrased the way that Jesus phrases it. So as we walk through today's narrative, I have two points that I believe are coming right out of the text regarding this new birth that Jesus is talking about. The first point is going to cover the conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus have. And the second point will cover the theological explanation that I believe John adds to it based on his understanding even after Christ had been crucified and raised. So the first point for us today is encountering Jesus by night. This is a story. This is a true story that actually happened, but John is presenting to us a narrative, a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And I pray that I'm able to explain it to us that way today. It'd be too easy for me to preach this message as theology of the new birth and to miss that God, through the gift of revelation, communicated this as a narrative. He put it in a gospel, and the gospels are largely written as narrative and structure and form. And that John recorded this to reveal the person of Jesus Christ to all who would read. 
Who is Nicodemus? We're, we're presented with this new character. As soon as we start, verse 1 of chapter 3. Jesus we have met already. Jesus has been with us even from the prologue, seeing him from eternity past as the word who has always been with God, has now come and is living with mankind. But Nicodemus enters stage left, and he's given a series of titles by John. He's a Pharisee, which means he's one of this devout sect of Jewish thinkers and scholars. And by Jesus' comments later in the text, he was probably even one of the elite of the elite. He was called in verse 10, the teacher of Israel. In addition, he's not only a Pharisee, he's also a ruler of the Jews. This means that he was part of the Sanhedrin, a council of Jewish leaders in position of authority and reputation. And this is really what most people would have felt was enough to know about Nicodemus. He's got these titles. He's an important person in religious circles. He's well-respected on account of these titles he's been given. But can we really know someone by their titles? Is a man or woman any more than what they do for a living, the positions they hold? Jesus sure thinks so because he probes instantly beneath the surface, beneath this veneer of title, of reputation. You'll see him doing that every time he speaks with someone in the Gospels. He goes beyond the surface facts about someone because he cares about them as a person. And he sees in a way that none of us can see. He sees the need of their hearts. So his first words to Nicodemus actually remind us of what just happened at the end of chapter 2. Remember at the end of chapter 2, before this chapter break, we heard that Jesus knew all people. He didn't need anyone to bring witness or bear testimony about people because he knew what was in man. And here he shows what is in Nicodemus. But the initiator of this conversation appears to have been Nicodemus. He comes to have a meeting with Jesus. John tells us this leader of the Jews approached Jesus at night. Now, what are we supposed to do with this piece of information? Is it just a little extra thing that John added on there, that this meeting took place at night? So just give us some time cue. Many theories have been proposed for this from different scholars of varying denomination and scholarship. Some conclude that Nicodemus was afraid. So in fear, he didn't want to be seen with Jesus, so he went at night. Others think that since this time of day was when rabbis would often get together to discuss theological matters, that that's why it happened at night. And he's just letting us know that these are two well-known teachers of the day getting together for a discussion. Others have proposed that John really just wanted to give us a time marker. That when he wrote this down, he remembered the time of day, but it doesn't add anything of importance to the story. But sadly, all of these miss the fact that John is no stranger to the symbolic. John, in fact, has already been bombarding us with symbol-laden elements from chapter 1 through chapter 2. Things that a Jewish reader, a Jewish listener in particular, would have immediately caught. And one of those is this concept of light and darkness. And you even saw it in my title if you have a bulletin in front of you. This entire account is shedding light on the new birth. Because what Nicodemus is doing by coming to Jesus at night and what John is doing in 
sharing this detail about the story, I would say, is that it tells us something about Nicodemus and his state before God. I would say that there's even support in that from another key text in John that we haven't gotten to yet. Because in John 13, the apostle writes in a very similar way. Feel free to turn there. In John 13, when Jesus reveals who it was that was going to betray him, remember the disciples, they're together reclining at a table. And John asks Jesus, who is it? And Jesus gives this detail. He says it's the person that he's going to dip the piece of bread and hand it to. And the next thing he does after saying that is hand it to Judas. And immediately after this event in John 13, verse 30, John records, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out, and it was night. So the night appears to be symbolic for the spiritual darkness of both Judas and Nicodemus. Both thought they hid their state of darkness behind this veil of religiosity. In fact, to you and I, if we knew them, we would have thought they were good people. We would have thought they were upstanding citizens who knew their, their Torah well. But by the true light of Jesus, their deeds were being exposed as a religious sham. Remember in chapter 1, verse 9, the true light was coming into the world. So we need Jesus to do the same work in our lives, to distinguish in us between the good works that we try to do to earn God's favor and the true works that come out of a heart that has been changed and transformed by the new birth. So while he addresses Jesus, Nicodemus comes to him at night and brings with him a title of respect. He says, Rabbi, This is basically, teacher, we've seen you. We see what you're doing. In effect, we know who you are. So he comes not submitting to Jesus as the Messiah, not even bringing himself down and saying, I'm going to be on the same level as you, but really in the way he addresses Jesus, he says, we know We know that you are a teacher come from God. In fact, setting himself up as the authority on who God is, on who Jesus is. Rather than seek to learn from Jesus or to confess his authority, it seems that Nicodemus' first goal is to let him know who they are and show their authority. He uses this first-person plural, we, to add some reputability, to add some importance to what he's going to say. He also refers to seeing the signs of Jesus. None of these points are insignificant, as John is using them to flesh out the nuances and the characters that he's presenting. Nicodemus hasn't asked anything He hasn't asked any questions. There may be an implied question about where it is that he's from, whether he's a prophet or something like that. But all he starts with is this lofty claim. We know you are a teacher come from God because we've seen the signs and no one can do signs like that unless they have God with them. So Jesus' response, his first response perhaps comes across as a bit startling. You know, Nicodemus has come to him, has actually acknowledged that he's a teacher, although he's a teacher that should be within their, you know, governance, it seems. But rather than fawn before the religious leadership, the God of the universe in the flesh responds as the true authority he is. So he sees Nicodemus' true self better than even Nicodemus knew himself. And he states this, Truly, truly, I say to you. 
This is a statement that he's already used once in this book. It's a statement of confidence, of authority. It basically means, what I say is true. So what will he say? He's he's laying the groundwork for some earth-shattering statement about Nicodemus. Will he break out the whip that he has just used previously to cleanse the temple? His statement is as truly spoken to Nicodemus as it is in our midst today. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let the, the weight of that sink in to our 21st century ears. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you think you know me. And your works have made you an authority about the things of God. You see my signs, you can make judgments about my ministry, but consider this truth, Nicodemus, because it is true. Unless you are born again, or unless you are born from above, you have seen and can see nothing of God's kingdom work. You are totally blind to the working of God unless you are born again. You will not experience God's promised kingdom at the end of the age with eternal resurrection life unless you have this new birth. So there's a contrast I'd like to point out, one of a couple contrasts that are going to come up in this narrative. The distinction between Nicodemus having seen the signs and Jesus truly seeing. Nicodemus thought he and the other religious authorities had Jesus all figured out, but they could not truly see a thing without new birth. Now Nicodemus seems by his response to show he didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Maybe he got it to some small degree, but his response is merely about physical birth. He recognizes that birth takes place from the womb of a mother, the most innocent of places when we first enter the world. So here on Mother's Day, there's a point in our text that recognizes the work of the mother. The beauty of bringing new life into the world is a profound and creative work of God. And Nicodemus wants to know, essentially, are you saying that's going to happen again? Are you saying that we're going to climb back into our mother's womb and have another go at this life? Because Nicodemus knows what I think all of us know deep down in our souls. That what we long for at some level is a new beginning. A chance to start over. Chance to put behind us perhaps the regrets of things done in the past. Things that we've done, things that have been done to us. Nicodemus is basically asking, are you saying we can have a fresh start? How can this new birth, though, happen to someone once they're already born from their mother's womb? We know that time can't go backwards, but can one get a clean slate by going back the womb? Now this sounds ludicrous to think of, a bit grotesque. But I would submit that it really speaks to the regret that every human faces at some point for past wrongs done. Every moral being lying awake at night probably thinks of that hurtful that uncaring thing that was said or done and wish we could take it all back. Wish we could actually turn back the clock. But do you know what? If we had the chance to go back and do it again, we would make the mistake over again because it's really not about having a new beginning, being changed. 
from the inside. And that's what Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to see. Even if you went back, Nicodemus, and could be born again, could start the clock over, you still have that sinful heart that needs to be changed. Now, the great authors, secular authors, recognize this yearning of moral beings. Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote, And ah, for a man to arise in me, that the man I am may cease to be. There's this tension of wanting something different. So Nicodemus, I think, really is wanting more information about this new birth. Because it really seems too good to be true. Don't make claims, Jesus, that you can't back up. It's just too much. But Jesus doesn't back down from his claim. He actually keeps coming at Nicodemus with essentially the same statement again. In fact, verses 3 and 5 have very parallel language. I encourage you to look at them. He uses slightly different words, but he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let's look at the pieces that are parallel. They both have truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 3 and verse 5. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. In verse 5, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there's a slight variation there, slight difference in intensity. Then the other part that's also similar, unless one is born again, in verse 3, unless one is born of water and spirit, in verse 5. I think that's one of the key things that Jesus is putting in there to probe Nicodemus a little bit further in his understanding from his study of the Old Testament. Why would he refer to water and spirit? Again, this is another place where scholars have lots of opinions. Some think being born of water is a reference to human birth, water birth related to the amniotic fluid that we are born through. But that's really fairly unique because none of the ancient literature that scholars have looked through ever references human birth as water birth. So this would be, this would be new of Jesus to give that comparison. There's no evidence it would have been read that way in first century literature. Or some have said being born of water is ultimately referring to Christian baptism. But again, to Nicodemus, This is before any of the teachings on Christian baptism have been put forth in the epistles. So this is assuming some later understanding in the conversation that just wouldn't have made sense to Nicodemus. Instead, if you look at what's parallel in those two parts, being born again is parallel with being born of water and spirit. So water and spirit it doesn't seem to be a referring to two different births, but they're one way of referring to the new birth, to being born again. And when Jesus later expects that Nicodemus should have known this from his study of Old Testament scriptures, we should know to start looking in our Old Testaments for references to this kind of new birth. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, you won't see references specifically to born again or even really to new birth. But we do see places, a number of places where water and spirit are linked. And they're typically referring to God's future work in his people. He's going to do something related to water and spirit. And we end up reading exactly this when we open to Ezekiel chapter 36. We've already seen this passage once since starting John's gospel, but let's turn there again. This is a critical critical passage for us in understanding what Jesus is saying about new birth. So starting in verse number 25, this is God speaking to his people through his prophet Ezekiel. This is what he says. This is God. I will sprinkle clean water on you 
And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. Again, that's Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. And without giving you that whole chapter, again, God is speaking to his people about a future time when he will do this work of new birth in his people. And it has these two components, the sprinkling of water and the spirit being given, being put within God's people. And Jesus here is speaking of that same work that Ezekiel was talking about, that he had written about hundreds of years earlier, and possibly for the first time Jesus was using the terminology born again to label what this is. This is a metaphor for the spiritual reality of a new nature-giving work that God is going to do and now has done in his people So Jesus isn't just talking about a new beginning where we get to try again to do better the next time, to be a better person, to live a better life, but with the same raw materials. No, that's not it at all. Jesus is saying, I am going to give you a new birth that has with it a new nature. And these two components that Ezekiel talks about are helpful in bringing more understanding here. The element of water. What does it do in Ezekiel 36? I will sprinkle clean water on you. And what will it do? It will cleanse you from all your uncleanness. And the work of the Spirit is going to bring power for new living. So the new birth both cleans you up and empowers you to live differently. Jesus is saying, unless you are cleaned up by God and empowered by his spirit to live differently, born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the second contrast that I think falls out of this narrative, and I hope we see it, is that Nicodemus was looking for a new beginning. But that's contrasted with Jesus giving a new nature. We need far more than just a fresh start, brothers and sisters. We need to be made new by God. And to reinforce this message that we need something completely different than more of the same, trying to work harder, do more, and failing, Jesus gives another comparison. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. That's the basic reading of verse number six in our text, which is something even the youngest here would probably recognize. If a mommy elephant is having a baby, what kind of creature will be born? It will be a baby elephant. Right. And if a fish laid its eggs and out flew a bald eagle, we should all be surprised because that just doesn't happen. In the same way, Jesus is saying, from sinful human flesh, we are going to just create and engender more of the same. The result of a birth from flesh will be more flesh. Nothing will change unless we are born of something fundamentally different. And that something is actually someone A person of the Spirit of Almighty God Himself is required to communicate His very nature to us, producing that fundamental change. Yes, we still keep these flesh and blood bodies, at least for now until we get the resurrected ones. But the essential nature of one who has been born again has changed. We receive new desires to love and serve God. We begin to hate 
sin, not just the consequences of sin, but the actual sin itself as that which is flying in the face of a holy God. And as we'll see later in the text, we actually come to the light. Instead of hiding in the darkness, we come to the light so that our deeds can be exposed by God. And the good deeds can be seen as that which God wrought in us, and the bad deeds can be forsaken and repented of and cleansed. As D.A. Carson points out in his commentary on this text, the wonder of this The wonder of this truth is that in order for us human beings, those born of the flesh, to experience this new birth that makes them children of God, the eternal word, himself God, became flesh. Let me read that again. In order for human beings, us, flesh and blood, to experience the new birth that makes them children of God, The eternal word, himself God, became flesh. You see that? Especially together with what John has already said in his prologue, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He did so in order that now we can become born again by the Spirit. Well, Nicodemus wasn't yet seeing this. In verse 7, Jesus follows this up with, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Something we don't see in our translation is that Jesus speaks to and about every one of us as well. His use of the plural pronoun, he's saying you and you and you and you and you and you must be born again. It means all of you must be born again. In Chicago, where I spent some time growing up, we would say, yous must be born again. In the South, they would say, all y'all. I think, is that right? Yeah. That's enough of a language lesson for today. But here in Jesus' use of the plural, not just Nicodemus, don't just disconnect this from anything we need. Hear Jesus' words to you as well. You must be born again. It's critical. To illustrate his point, Jesus says, look at the wind. Actually, you can't. You can't see the wind unless there's a lot of pollen or a lot of smog in it. But even then, you're not seeing the wind. You're seeing the particles that are floating around in the wind and carried by the wind. And not only can you not see the wind, but you really can't tell much about the wind by looking at it. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's heading. And even though we know more than they did then about meteorology and how storm patterns form and things like that, our scientific heads may be swelling bigger with that knowledge, but we still don't know the real source of a thunderstorm in Kansas. We don't know the hurricane that's in the Gulf. Oh, we can point it back to this low-pressure system somewhere in the Atlantic. But we also know from nonlinear dynamics and chaos theory that it could have been started when a butterfly in the Amazon flapped its wings. That little puff of breeze started some system, cascaded. But I see that as Jesus' point here. We can't understand the wind. I went on a walk last night. It's fun having a, a dog again that we used to go on walks a lot late in the evening. And it was cool, and late at night it's always quieter. There's not the traffic noise. Occasionally we have trains that go near us, but it was very quiet last night, and I heard nothing but leaves rustling. And they would go in kind of phases. It'd be quiet, and then you'd hear leaves rustling. We can see and we can hear the effects of wind, but we don't really understand the wind itself. 
We see when it blows through a pile of leaves on an autumn afternoon. We can hear the sounds it makes when whistling through a canyon or the deafening roar that a tornado makes. We know when it's there, but we know little about it. And Jesus says, so it is. Basically, it's the same way with everyone that is born of the Spirit. The new birth is a miraculous event at its core. And it's good to remember that we can't actually see it take place, either in ourselves or in another. We know the effects. We know the change in desires and in loves and the power that it creates to live differently. But if you go looking for a clap of thunder that shows a sign that God has given you new life, that's not how it works. The inner change that takes place, though, is even more powerful than any cataclysmic physical event. It's more awesome than any physical sign we could look for. So, brother and sister today, praise God for your new birth. Praise God for his work to create new life where there was only dead, sinful flesh. And pray for and seek it in your children, in those in our midst or in our community that have not yet experienced this new birth. And this is critical because of what's going to be said in the coming verses about those who have not experienced the new birth through faith in Christ. But before that, we have Nicodemus has just a few more things to say. And the final words we hear from him today are thankfully not his final words in John's Gospel. But he ends the conversation here with Jesus in this nighttime meeting with a lack of understanding still of how it's possible to have this new birth. He says, essentially, how can this happen? How can these things be, is how the ESV renders it. As a scholar of the scriptures, he has not yet made any connection between what he's studied and knows intellectually and the need of his heart for rescue from sin. That's sometimes referred to as the 18 inches that it takes to recognize our need of a Savior. The distance between our brain and intellectually understanding some facts, but then recognizing that we ourselves stand condemned by our sin and need a Savior, need a new birth to happen in our hearts. And Jesus is visibly concerned with how this teacher of Israel has been reading his Bible. His reading of the Law and the Prophets had led him to practice rituals, had led him to perpetuate these layers of man-made religion. But he didn't see Jesus on those pages of Old Testament Scripture and his own need for redemption. Instead of looking for a supernatural work of God in light of his sinful nature, he was looking instead for a way to maintain reputation of righteous living before others. And this is the same with every religion man has ever created throughout history. The result always leaves men and women farther and farther from their creator. And here in this narrative, the way Nicodemus' name is mentioned as the teacher of Israel, it's more like he even has some official title, some official role of being the teacher of Israel, not just another teacher, but something special, something to look up to. He appeared to be recognized for his knowledge of Scripture, but yet he did not understand God. And the least, may the same not be true of us. Jesus grounds his authority then, using a third and final use of truly, truly, I say to you, everything he's communicated about being born again is what he knows from actually having witnessed it with his own eyes. He matches Nicodemus' first-person plural of we know, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. And Jesus here uses his own series of plural pronouns. We speak 
We know, we have seen, but you have not received our testimony. When Jesus is saying we, he's not talking about himself and his disciples, I don't think. It appears he's bringing the triune Godhead into the equation. What he knows as God, he is telling Nicodemus about during this meeting. And by extension, he is telling us through the inspired pages of Scripture. So what Jesus has said about the new birth is ultimately rooted in God's revelation of himself, both in the person of Jesus Christ and in the word that we hold in our hands and in our laps. What he knows as God, he tells to Nicodemus, and sadly, even with this revelation from God himself about God himself, Nicodemus continues to close his heart to this truth of what he's hearing about new birth. So Jesus makes two closing arguments. One is from the lesser to the greater. He says, how do you expect to know anything about heavenly things if you can't even understand earthly things? And by earthly things, it seems that he's referring to the new birth because that's what they've been talking about. We've been talking about new birth, something that happens to flesh and blood people while they live on the earth, earthly thing. How do you expect to know anything about heavenly things, the eternal kingdom, end times? And by doing so, he's declaring himself as the only one that knows truly about heavenly things. He says, I am the one that ascended from heaven and the only one that knows anything about heaven and is able to speak authoritatively about it is the one who has been there. From this text, it seems that Jesus is making a fundamental requirement for a new birth, and that is to receive God's self-revelation. To accept by faith that Jesus is who he says he is. And according to Jesus, you, Nicodemus, do not receive this testimony. And you do not believe. Oh, for the faith that can only come from God. To receive and believe the testimony of the one who came down from heaven to bring new birth to sinful man. And Jesus finishes his conversation with one more allusion to Old Testament scripture. This time, instead of going to one of the prophets, he uses an event in a historical section of Old Testament. The nation in the book of Numbers had been led out of Egypt by Moses. And the people were impatient and complaining. Maybe some of the kids in here remember some of these stories even better than the grown-ups hearing them in Sunday school of the complaining people of Israel saying, we want to go back to Egypt because we had food there. And now we have to wait for this manna. It's not even very good. So let's read the text that Jesus is referring to when he speaks of Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness. We want to understand why Jesus would liken himself to a snake. It seems strange, doesn't it? Well, in Numbers 21, I will start reading in verse number 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against Moses and against God. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed, for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, 
shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This seems like an obscure place for Jesus to go on first reading. It seems like he could have gone to the sacrificial system, which has whole books in the Old Testament describing this sign of Jesus as the Lamb of God, and he could have made that connection. But instead, he goes to this story about a serpent being put on a pole. Why? Well, there are several key things to note in the account of the fiery or the bronze serpent. These are worth digging into some more on your own this week, perhaps in community groups. In fact, even just looking at the time, I'm probably not going to be able to get to the latter half of this text. So let's actually just settle here. and We'll finish today's sermon here in verse 15 understanding better why Jesus is drawing this connection between himself and the serpent being lifted up on the pole. The first thing I'd like us to note is that the death that the people were facing was in direct consequence for their sin. The impatient and complaining response that God's people were making in the wilderness was enough for God to send serpents as their judgment. None of us walk through our lives as innocent victims of circumstance. Yes, though we experience sins of others, we also bring our own sinful hearts into every relationship, every life event. And our sins may be the overt kind, actions to hurt others, to blaspheme God, Or they could be the covert heart desires to exalt ourselves and make the world revolve around us. But we too face sin's consequences leading to death. So in that way, we are very much like Israel. Facing death when they are bitten by these snakes. The second key thought I I see here is that God ordained the provision of this serpent on a pole and its life-giving effects. This is such a vivid picture of faith. There's nothing inherent in a piece of shaped bronze that gets lifted up on a pole that heals one from toxic snake venom. You can check the literature. There's nothing about that that inherently will give you salvation or take away the the painful or or, um, the effects that are going to kill you There's no anti-venom there. No, this is the supernatural work of God to act in a saving way in the face of dependent faith. Moses, under direction of God, says, all you need to do is look to the serpent. Just look at it. That's it. Don't put on some rare ingredients or don't put on a, a salve on your skin to try to heal your snake bite. Instead, just look and live, as the old gospel song says it. That's all they had to do. God ordained this provision of just looking to the serpent and they would be saved from the death that they were facing. It's also important to notice the bronze serpent was not a preventative measure. It was not like, if you look at the serpent once, then, you know, down the road, two weeks later, if a snake happens to bite you, you're good. You've got your, you know, your vaccine for the snake bite. No, it was for people bitten and already dying. This one really had me in the coffee shop the other morning when I was meditating on this truth for a while. When bit, you were either going to die or you were going to follow the prescribed method a salvation from that death. The salvation is for dying people. And we too, like those in the Old Testament, face certain death from our sins. 
apart from looking to the only remedy. And that is what Jesus points out at the end. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The act of being lifted up for Jesus is foretelling his exalted death. How do we get from so must the Son of Man be lifted up to Christ and his crucifixion? Well, Jesus is going to use this exact same phrase, lifted up, two more times in John's Gospel. One will be in John 8, 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And the second time in John 12, verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And in both of these statements, he is progressing toward his death and actually foretelling the way he would die. And the Greek there refers both to a literal lifting up like the snake on a pole or like being raised on a Roman cross for the most gruesome act of public execution. But it can also be used another way. That same Greek word also refers to the act of being exalted. And really, in the crucifixion, Christ is fulfilling both. He is being lifted up in death on a cross, but he is also being made gloriously exalted to those who have eyes to see that truth. The horrific event of the God-man made death in the cruelest manner imaginable is also the most exalted and glorious event in all human history. So Jesus is directly connecting his being lifted up to die on the cross with the new birth that we all so desperately need. And then John is going to exposit that a little bit more for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And really, we could spend another half hour on that. I probably won't do that today. Just for sake of time, we'll probably need to conclude and turn to John 3:16 through 21 next week, Lord willing. But over 300 years ago, Isaac Watts, I'll use this to wrap up, wrote one of his lesser-known hymn texts on the new birth. In some of the older hymnals, it appears with the actual title, Regeneration, which really just means rebirth, to give new life. And listen as I read these powerful words of God's life-giving work. Not all the outward forms on earth nor rights that God has given, nor will of man, nor blood, nor birth, can raise a soul to heaven. Sovereign will of God alone creates us heirs of grace, born in the image of his Son, a new peculiar race. The Spirit, like some heavenly wind, blows on the sons of flesh, creates anew a heavenly mind and forms the man afresh. Our quickened souls awake and rise from the long sleep of death. On heavenly things we fix our eyes and praise employs our breath. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the truth of the new birth. I pray that we would understand it better today as a result of hearing Jesus' teaching and discussion with Nicodemus on this topic. I pray that the glory in the reality of the new birth for all who have been made new in Christ would be reveled in would be enjoyed and experienced afresh, God, in hearing this transforming work that you do in hearts by your Son who is lifted up for us. And also, Father, I pray again for any here who have not yet bowed the knee in faith and submission to the One, the only One who can save from sin, 
pray that if there's any here in that state, that today would be the day they would experience the new birth. That they would hear the words of Jesus ringing in their ears. You must be born again. And that you would bring them from darkness to your glorious light. In Jesus' name, this is our prayer. Amen. So as we turn...